What is resurrection? Anastasis is the Greek word describing this term. According to a a well-known Bible dictionary, it means a raising up, a rising up, a standing up, to cause to stand up. But we know that Jesus didn't just rise up from nothing. He rose up for a reason. He rose from the dead. And we're told in Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. One thing we know is that if a dead body stays dead, it will decay. It will decompose. This text is making it clear that this is not the case with Jesus. He did rise from the grave. We also know from Isaiah 53:8 from this text, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Interesting words, taken away in this text. It's, it's rather poetic. To be taken away in this context means to lose one's life. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Words again, communicating, cut off from the land of the living, which means he died. Verse 10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The New Testament is not the only place where we find words speaking to us about resurrection. What happened in the New Testament is rooted in Old Testament text. This was not some brand new thing. Remember, Jesus confronted many of the religious leaders about this issue. What is the resurrection? And we know that there was a group of Jews called the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. That somebody could actually die and come back to stand up. That is the what of resurrection. But why the resurrection? We needn't go much further than Isaiah 53, which says in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Why the resurrection? Far transgressions, far wrongdoing. That is why. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why the resurrection? For our sins that we bore. The chastening for our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Why the resurrection? So that we could be healed. Without it, we would not be healed. This is the why. Of the resurrection. Interesting words in this text. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. How interesting. Something as horrific as the crucifixion and the resurrection brought something good for us. 
Amen. This is the why of the resurrection. Our primary text today will be coming from Mark chapter 16, verses 12 through 13, and also Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. And at this time, I'd like to take some time to read those two texts. The Mark text is only two verses long. We will read that one first. Mark 16, verses 12 through 13. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them. The he in this text is Jesus Christ. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. We know from many readings in the gospel that the disciples at various points were people of doubt. Our Luke 24 text, beginning at verse 13 And behold, two of them, this is that same two from Mark's gospel. The two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached And began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visitor visitor in Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Remember, they don't even know that this is Jesus. What things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning And did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. Jesus responds to them. He says to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary 
for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going. And he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. For it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, which we shall take later this morning, and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour, leaving their food, mind you. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Let us pray, saints. Dear Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for you, Father. We thank you that you have brought us from a mighty, mighty long way. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to speak to us even 2,000 years after your son rose from the dead. And Father, he continues to rise. He rises in our hearts today. Father, I pray that the word that you have given unto me, Lord, will be indeed your words and that father your word will go out and it will not return void and that your word will find fertile soil in the hearts in this room lord god our preaching father is not in vain and our preaching is not just for those who are already saved our preaching is for those who teeter between belief and doubt and so father we pray We pray that your word touches those who do not yet know that they should believe. We pray that the text will speak to their hearts this morning. We pray, Father, that you will resurrect in their hearts, that you will cause them to stand up by your power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that there will be many, a multitude of people in this place today who shall stand up who shall resurrect. And it shall only be done by your power, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, John sent me a text. Our senior leader, our senior pastor, he's in in Haiti on a mission trip. And um, upon landing, his expectation was that he would go with this this group of of believers and and, believers um, those are, there, are, there are some in the group that aren't believers, but they're willing to do something good for someone else. 
And when he landed, he was told, um, thinking that he was going to be there to help build some playgrounds in, in Haiti, he was told, oh, by the way, you're preaching this Sunday and next Sunday. <laughs> and so I told him, I said, well, you know, you have to be ready in season and out of season, I guess. So he sent me this text. I'll read it to you. He's a funny, funny guy. He says, praying for you, my brother. Have a great time preaching. I just finished here preaching. (laughs) Please tell the church I send my love and greetings. Preach well and have fun. Oh, and before I forget, like I say to you on the worship team, don't stink. That's for you. (laughs) So don't stink, Heidi. Amen. So that's our senior leader, and we love him very much, and we're continue to pray for him um, these next couple of weeks, and we look forward to seeing him again when he returns. So no pressure. Um, <laughs> going the extra mile. It's a very interesting text we're reading this morning from the book of Luke. The text says on this road to Emmaus in verse 13, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which is about about seven miles from Jerusalem. What's interesting, this is originally written in Greek. They didn't deal in miles. Um, they dealt in stadia. And so seven miles really is, and I can't say the words properly, a hexconta stadium, which is 60 stadia. This is how we get to an understanding of why we believe it was seven miles. 60 stadia One stadia, that is, equals 600 feet, 600 times 60, 60 stadia being um, this unit of measurement, equals 36,000 feet. If we divide that by what we know a mile to be, 5,280 feet, we get 6.8. So when when, um, interpreters of the scripture are saying seven miles in whatever version of, of the Bible we're reading, this is how they get to seven miles. So we have these three persons walking for roughly seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a site we do not know exactly where Emmaus is located, but we know it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. We know that this region is very rocky, um, this very mountainous terrain. Um, For those of you who, who exercise, who walk or run, Uh, I'm trying to get in better shape myself. Seven miles is not death, but seven miles is seven miles. (laughs) And so I can imagine just walking or running, trying to get to seven miles on flat surface. But this is mountainous area. And, you know, I I did a little estimation. It probably might have taken conservatively maybe about two hours or so to do this. So imagine Jesus... And they don't know that this is Jesus. He's walking with them for seven miles for about two hours up and down hills. I think this is the way we need to be looking at the text. It's not just words on the page. This is living, breathing stuff. I'm not going to preach for two hours. But Jesus is with them for roughly two hours going up and down mountainous regions, preaching to them, revealing to these two disciples this guy that they say to him, thinking that he's a visitor, you, are you a visitor to Jerusalem? You, you don't know what's been happening around these parts? Two miles, or excuse me, seven miles, about two hours he's doing this. This took some effort to do. 
and they're listening to him. We're told in Matthew 5:41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, this is not the case here. No one is forcing anyone to do anything. But Jesus comes alongside them. He is near them. He's not willing to just go two miles. He is willing to go the extra mile after mile after mile after mile. And this right here is a picture of what he does for us, too. He doesn't just take us part of the way. He has promised to take us from this point, the point of salvation, until we meet him, until we cross over. He will not abandon us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And we don't have to have any concern about it. This is the kind of person he is. And he shows this and reveals this even in this story. And so the text tells us that he walks up to the two disciples, begins to walk with them, and they do not turn him away. Total stranger, they think, walks up to them as they're continuing a conversation. You know, some, you know, growing up, I've heard people say this is an A and B conversation, so see your way out of it. They don't do that to him. They let him come up to them. He approaches and he, he listens in. And he takes part in this conversation. There is a lesson in this for us as well. How many times, innumerable innumerable times, does Jesus come up to you, come up to us? Will we turn him away? Or will we let him walk alongside of us, being near to us, ministering to us, listening to us as well? Will we allow Jesus to do this? Do we receive him or do we turn him away? He's desirous to go the extra mile for us and with us. And I think he's proven it. He died on a cross for us. If he's willing to do that, the ultimate, pay the ultimate price, will he not do more for us? I believe there's a text, um, Romans 8.32. The apostle Paul said, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is the God we serve. He's given us everything already, and there's much more he shall give to us, overflowing and abundant. Now, I think it's interesting that the resurrection story occurs in what in modern times we might call springtime. And while one could easily go into thinking about pagan ramifications, I think there's something more important to be seen here. And I think the pagans have actually hijacked it in a sense. Because this is, of course, the time when flowers bloom and, you know, birds and animals begin to flourish. But there is a newness of life that Christ brings, and it takes center stage. This is why I love Easter. I think it is the most important time in the year. It's the most important time in the calendar, which is why I take vacation every Easter for a week. In this series entitled, Then What Happened? I think what should be happening is a recognition how important this moment is. I think that's what this series really is about. Do we see how important the resurrection is? There is no life without it. If he did not rise, if he stayed in the grave, if he stayed in the tomb, 
what would be the point of being here? What hope would there be for us or the world if he never rose from the grave? This is what this series is about and should be about. Then what happened? The answer to that question is we recognize how important this moment is for us, all that God did for us. So what should now happen is I, myself, and we as a congregation should be taking this message to the world. There is no message in the world that is more important than this message, that Christ got up from the grave, that he actually did it, and that he promises the same thing for us, for those who live in faith and trust in him. I think that is what this message is truly about. But as we go through the text, we find that the disciples, as they're walking towards Emmaus, they have a certain mindset, a certain disposition. We are told in verse 17, they had some concerns. In verse 17, it says, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. These were saddened individuals, saddened folks. They had just lost their leader. Now, some had seen him rise, had seen the evidence of his, his rising. Others did not. But there was still doubt among them. There were a certain group of women who came to proclaim, Christ has risen, the stone is rolled away, and they did not believe. They didn't know which way to turn. They were doubtful. In verse 21, we are told that... Um, um, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. They were hoping? Don't you remember what he told you? He told you he would die. He told you he would rise after the third day. And they're hopeful? This is the state that they're in. They're doubting themselves. They're doubting what the Lord told them. In verse 24, we are told that they were unbelieving. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And we see this more clearly clearly in the Mark text. In Mark 16, verse 13, we find these words. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. And these are the apostles who had doubts, who were saddened because of the recent events that happened in Jerusalem as they're walking with this stranger seven-mile trek towards Emmaus. More about Emmaus in a little bit. They were doubtful. They were concerned. They were sad. They were unbelieving. But it's not just these somewhat negative things. There were positive things, too. They had certain beliefs. They had certain things they could hang their trust on. In verse 19, they called Jesus a prophet. In verse 19, they say, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. They recognized that. This man was not like any other man they had ever met. He was mighty in word and deed. There's a text to show it. This is just one example. The kind of force Jesus presented to those naysayers who tried to twist his words. Uh, Earlier, a few chapters before this proper text today, Luke 20, 
verses 34 through 40. We find this. This is one of my most favorite passages in all the gospel because it shows the power of Jesus. It shows how strong his words are. I can't imagine what it might have been to be physically present at that time when he was giving responses to those who tried to derail him. It says here, Jesus said to them, incidentally, what is this text talking about? The resurrection. Hallelujah. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, You have well spoken, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. I love this text. I can't imagine how strong and powerful he must have been when he stood before people and said what needed to be said, and they backed away. What a powerful Savior. What about John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27? So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. This is speaking of Lazarus. And again, it is talking about the resurrection. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, another distance. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. All of these texts speak about the resurrection. All of them speak about the force, the power of this man, Jesus, to change lives, to restore life, to bring us back to God. This is the whole point of the, revela- the, the resurrection. This is, the whole point of it is to bring back those who were lost to God the Father. And this is the means to do it. God himself in the form of man coming down to earth, taking the place of man, dying for the sins of the world, the only perfect man ever to live, in order to restore the relationship that was lost. This is why the resurrection is the most important thing we could ever talk about. It's about bringing us back to God. 
where we belong. The Lord meets us on the road. I love some parallels I found the last couple of weeks as as I was preparing for this message. We have the story, the road to Damascus. There are stories about roads everywhere in the New Testament. The road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. We're not going to read all of these texts. But you remember the story. The apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus at this time. He was sent by the leaders of Jerusalem to go and capture those who might be of the way, Christians. And he had letters from these leaders. He had the authority to go and capture them, to bring them back for trial, have them executed. But as he was going, he met somebody on the road. Hallelujah. We have the story of of, of Philip in the in the previous chapter here in Acts chapter eight, verses 26 through 40. The Holy Spirit tells Philip to go and meet someone who was in the desert. He meets this Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. This is where he meets him. And this man is reading a text of scripture. And it happens to be the same text I just read moments ago. Isaiah chapter 53. And as he's reading it, he says to Philip, who the spirit told him, go, hitch up next to him. Be near him. Listen to him. Minister to him. And the man says, the eunuch says to Philip, the prophet here, is he speaking of himself or some other man? And Philip reveals to him that the man is Jesus. That is who this prophet is speaking about. He met him on this road. And of course, our proper text today, two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus meets them and he reveals himself to them. All three of these stories have so much in common. The Lord meets them where they are. As they are walking wherever they're going with whatever intent they have, God meets them and there is a shift. There is a turn. This next slide shows some of the similarities amongst these texts. These are missional parallels, and I don't know that we can see that too clearly. Maybe we can. In each of these cases... There is this this state of of those who have these unsettled hearts. There's doubt. They don't know which way to turn. We have the Ethiopian eunuch confused. Is this about the prophet or is it about some other man? We have these two disciples walking to Emmaus. Well, we hope that he would redeem Israel, but we're not so sure. All of these texts have these common things. A minister appears in every single case. On the road to Emmaus is Jesus himself. He's the minister. When it's the Ethiopian eunuch, it's Philip, another disciple. He's the minister unto them. When it is Paul on the road to Damascus, it's Jesus again. He's the minister. In each one of these cases, the parallels are thick. Truth is revealed in every single one of these cases. And this is what happens to us, too. This is, this is a progression of salvation, too, for many of us. Now, I'm not saying dogmatically that every single one of these things have to exist unto salvation, but it is interesting. We see a progressive movement of God, how God comes to us, reveals himself to us. We see the truth and we have to make a decision. Do I accept it or do I not? There's a religious right present in every one of these cases. In the first case, in Luke, they finally see that this is Jesus and he disappears 
What is the religious rite? Communion, the breaking of bread. In Paul's case, in Acts chapter 9, where he is on the road to Damascus, what is the religious rite? He rises up and he is baptized. In the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, he goes into the water, baptized. There's some kind of religious rite in each one of these cases. There's the acceptance of truth, and a miracle occurs in every single case. And the miracle for us, what might be the miracle for us? Salvation. We hear the truth. We have to make a decision. Do I trust or do I not? And the Lord is there to walk with us along the way. But we have to choose him. We have to choose not to push him away as he comes alongside us on the road. If he comes up to us, will we receive him or will we push him away? That is what is being revealed to us today. So what happened next? Going back to to the title of this series. What happened next is the revealing of Jesus to us. What's your step after that? Do you trust him or do you not? In this text, there's a little deviation because Jesus brings out some things in verse 25. He says, he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? It's interesting to look at a few texts of scripture that speak about this foolishness. I won't read them all. I will read the last two. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, we find these words. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Jesus came to set us free from those kinds of things. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Christ came to set us free from these foolish things. It's funny, as soon as I said that, I thought of this jazz song, These Foolish Things. Hallelujah. But he came to set us free. (laughs) I deviate sometimes. But he came to set us free from these things, these foolish things. Hallelujah. The Lord meets us not just on the road. He meets us at the table as well. On the screen, you may see four points here. In three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the writers tell us about how Jesus' process was, how he broke the bread, how he blessed it and passed it to his disciples, how he blessed the cup, how he passed it to his disciples. He said, take, eat. Take drink in remembrance of me. And we see this happening on the road to Emmaus. They didn't even know it was Jesus until he did something that he was accustomed to doing. Once they saw that mannerism, then they knew this is Jesus. I wonder, when we're walking through our lives, going through fraught with problems or not, have you ever thought when you're going through something and something comes through and corrects the problem. Do you see Jesus in that? Do you recognize him stepping in at that moment in your life to rescue you? Do you see him? Jesus doesn't always nowadays speak in an audible voice. 
Sometimes it's something like extra money for you to get through that month. Do you, do you think the devil will do that for you? He won't. This is God doing this. God does this for us. And sometimes we don't see these things as spiritual. They are. I mean, when you, ha- when you are at a loss for words and you don't know how to reconcile a relationship and there is a way found, do you think God orchestrated that? Or do you think it just happened? I mean, God steps in. He meets us on the road. He meets us at the table. He meets us as we're laying in our bed. He meets us when we're crying. He meets us when we're laughing. He's there all the time with us to rescue us, to help us. I'm reminded of of a a text of scripture. Um, It comes from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Speaking of Jesus meeting us on the road. Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't force his way into our lives. We're told in Revelation 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. This is what he does. He comes alongside. He gives you an opportunity. He comes up to your door. He knocks. There's your opportunity. He's giving opportunities right now as I'm speaking, as he's speaking through me. He's giving us opportunities, in particular, those in the church who may not yet be saved. He's giving opportunity now. He's knocking on your door right now. He's come alongside you in the pew, sitting right next to you right now. This is a living, breathing book. We serve a God that is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Right now he's speaking to you, knocking on the door of your heart. But he's not going to barge his way in. He's just, he's, just, he's just tapping. Sometimes it's louder. Sometimes it's softer. But it is right, he's right there. Do you hear it? Will you respond? This is what Jesus does. Our next slide, it says Emmaus, heat. Reason I put this up there is as I was studying this, it's, it's an interesting point. You know, the way God weaves the tapestry of the gospel message to get things across to us. Some of us are auditory learners. Some of us are more kinetic. All of us learn differently. Some of us use imagery. Emmaus, that town, do you know what the word Emmaus means? It means warm spring or, or hot springs. That's what Emmaus means. So I guess this region had lots of, of, of volcanic um, activity underneath the, underneath the ground and heated up water sources. And it's interesting because in Luke chapter 24, verse 32, these two disciples, after Jesus had vanished, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning? <laughs> Hallelujah. Within us while he was speaking to us on the road? Is our heart burning? Jesus is right there, right underneath the surface, just bubbling up, trying to get our attention. Man, do we feel it at all? Do we see him? Do we feel him? He is right here. The scripture says, with two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst thereof. 
I know there's got to be more than two saints in this church right now. And he is here, hot, bubbling up, trying to get our attention. This is your Emmaus Road. This is your moment. Right here, right now. It doesn't matter if the whole world falls away. Christ will remain. He is right here, right now, burning under the surface. And what did they do? They're eating. He breaks the bread. Man, that's exactly what Jesus did. Oh, that's Jesus. He vanishes. The text says, what are they? it doesn't say, they, oh, well, let's just keep eating. They left their food and marched seven miles back to Jerusalem. They had to be burning inside to go share this good news. Is that our case? Are we eager to share this good news with the rest of the world, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our enemies? Are we eager to do that? It's funny, totally unexpected. About 10, 20 or so this morning, my phone rang, and it was my brother, one of my brothers, who I hadn't spoken to in over 20 years. This morning, over 20 years I hadn't spoken to him. There was a big rift between the two of us. Big rift. I mean, I can't even go into how bad it was between us. And here this man is, calls me, and we're laughing. And I asked him for forgiveness. I asked him for forgiveness for something I had done many years ago. And he's a believer in Christ. And he says there's no need for forgiveness. I was a different man back then, and so were you. And he's, speak, he's preaching to me on the phone. This God that we serve, man, he's just, I can't explain how powerful he is. I don't know what else I can say to convince us that there is nothing else in the world worth dying for, worth living for, except him. So my suggestion, what happened next? Leave your food on the table and take the trek. No no matter how far it takes, no matter what mountain you must climb, if the Lord is burning in your heart, you know who you should be speaking to. You know your friends, you know your enemies, you know your acquaintances better than anybody else in the world. God has uniquely equipped you to be the person to talk to that particular person. That's what he's done. He's created you to be the specific lady to talk to that particular person because it's unique, the relationship you have. And the Spirit will use your personality to get in touch with that person, bringing Christ into the conversation the way he guides you to do it. This fire of Christ is there. Let it burn. Behold, he stands at the door and knock. Do you hear his voice? Jesus is the ultimate missionary. That's, that's, the, that's the, the overarching theme in this. He's coming back to save. He, he, it, the reason he is the savior is because he saves. That is, that is his MO. He is a savior. And he does anything he can to get us. He will do it. He does do it. And I wonder, will we be like him insofar as doing whatever we can to bring people to Jesus? Bring them to Jesus. 
We're not going to save them. Just introduce. Hey, I want, I want you to come over. I want you to meet Jesus. And then you just walk away. He will take it from there. That's what we're supposed to do. We are missionaries designed by him to bring other people to him. Amen. Amen. God bless you.